Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world, and of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. I usually explain it that I was like Cinderella. It was my job to take care of the household and take care of everyone in it. Um, So I grew up very quickly. There was a lot of violence. Um, As a result of my parents drinking, they, um, they were very violent people. How children raised in an alcoholic home struggle to construct healthier lives for themselves. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Alcoholism is not a one-size-fits-all pattern. It can't be measured by the number of drinks a person takes in one sitting, or even how often he or she imbibes. Rather, it is defined by the drinker's loss of choice, a condition that comes on sometimes rapidly, sometimes gradually. As described in an old Japanese proverb, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. For the person facing alcohol problems, this can set up a harrowing predicament. Denial can distort perceptions of reality. Feelings of self-hatred can seep in. Workplace difficulties and health effects may soon follow. And there's often another unintended consequence of alcohol. When my mom was drinking and living with me still, um, I was probably 13, and um, I stepped up and took the motherly role because my brother is younger than me. And my mom would go out and make up lies, like she was going to, you know, go buy groceries for us or whatever. Like, I'm going out to do this, and she, you know, she'd only be out for, like, an hour. And, you know, three hours later, she'd come home, and she'd be drunk. And, you know, I was the one that stepped up and took the responsibility and, you know, made dinner and made sure my brother did everything that he needed to do to, uh, get himself through school. Johanna's a 16-year-old high school student hoping for a career in early childhood education. She's one of several young people from Massachusetts we talked with who were raised in homes with parental alcoholism. Not all of their first names used here are real. Hi, I'm Stephanie. Uh, My dad's an alcoholic and my mom's a recovering addict. And right now um, I'm working with special needs kids and I'm a senior in high school. I'm Jack, a um, uh, filmmaker, musician. Um, I actually take money home by working at Starbucks. And uh, I'm in AA myself. And um, my father and a lot of aunts and uncles have alcoholism. Some of them haven't admitted it yet. It's not unusual for kids growing up in an alcoholic home to develop drinking or other drug problems themselves. That alcoholism often runs in families is a medical fact. 
Genetics may play a role, but an unmistakable factor is the relationship dynamics, frequently unhealthy dynamics, that can take root when one or more parents is impaired by drinking. Aiden, age 29, works as a customer service manager for an insurance broker. I learned everything backwards because of my parents' drinking. Um, by that I mean that I thought that children were required to take care of their parents and not the other way around. Um, my parents were functional alcoholics in the sense that they held down jobs, um, but they would come home and it would be my job to cook and to clean and to clean them up and pay the bills and make sure the mortgage got paid and put food on the table. Um, because they came home in a condition where they weren't in good shape? Um, they came home and they just started drinking and they didn't they weren't concerned with feeding or clothing my brother and I. So um, since my brother was the favored child, <laughs> being that he was a male and that was important to my mother, um, I, I usually explain it that I was like Cinderella. It was my job to take care of the household and take care of everyone in it. Um, so I grew up very quickly. There was a lot of violence. Um, as a result of my parents drinking, they, um, they were very violent people. And Violence toward you? Yes, um, a lot of um, abuse, sexual assault, things of that nature in my childhood. And I thought that that's what every child experienced. I mm. thought every child was abused, had to do everything, had to cover their bruises before they left the house, had to portray this picture of everything being fine. Um, as a child, I didn't make eye contact with anyone. I didn't speak unless spoken to. I was a very high achiever um, academically because I was always afraid that if my parents got word that I had done anything bad, the consequences would be um, much greater than any quote-unquote crime. Um, so I learned things backwards. You know, I was hyper-responsible as a child and um, overly mature for my age and have learned through recovery that um, that's not the healthiest way to do things and that it's not my job to fix everything and be Wonder Woman and save the whole world and carry those responsibilities on my shoulder. I have a right to be right-sized. Hmm. I have the right to be um, happy, healthy, and whole as an individual. Um, and I'm lovable whether I take care of everyone around me or not. For some people, alcohol was flowing in the home from their earliest memory. Such a constant presence at gatherings of relatives, meals, any time, that booze was practically a member of the family. For others, like Stephanie, alcoholism arrived unexpectedly. For most of my childhood, I got along really well with both of my parents until my dad married my second stepmom. And um, she was sort of the instigator into his alcoholism. And he started drinking a lot, and he became really emotionally abusive. I was around 12 or 13. And um, he had always been um, an addict of some sort um, and abusive towards my mom, but it had turned towards me once he married my second stepmom. Every week I saw him, he started sitting me down and yelling at me and using all different sorts of insults. But... It really took a toll on my self-confidence, and I got to the point where I felt really, really lonely, and I didn't think anything of myself. And when my mom became an addict, 
things just got worse because I felt like I was surrounded by people who didn't understand me. And when I found the program, that was... The program being Alateen? Yeah. I realized that there were a lot of people who were going through what I was going through and that I wasn't the only one. Several of those we're hearing participate in meetings of Alateen where attendance is free. It's a group for teenagers coping with the effects of a parent, other relative, or friend who has a drinking problem. Alateen was established by Al-Anon, an international organization for adults whose lives have been affected by someone else's drinking. The adult group was launched in 1951 by a woman known as Lois W., whose husband co-founded Alcoholics Anonymous 16 years earlier. She noticed that for every male alcoholic who showed up at AA, a troubled wife was frequently lurking in the shadows. She started Al-Anon to help these wives and eventually other affected family members, including husbands and adult children. Here's Jack. It's interesting to me that like my father, um, really different than the other alcoholics that you've heard so far because he was actually a really great father, um, always was, and continues to be. Um, He struggled with, like, he struggled with his form of it, and, um, you know, it is, I mean, some people are sicker than others. I'm definitely, I think, sicker than than he is at the base of it um, because I just, like, went off the rails as soon as it as soon as it touched me. Meaning in your own drinking? Meaning in my own, yeah, in my own drinking. The way that I um, I think kind of look at it um, as far as like its effect on me is like sort of attitude toward it was that it was fun and um, exciting and something you do when you get old enough to do it. And um, it was almost in a lot of ways marketed <laughs> toward me uh, my whole life. Um, so it was something I was really interested in. Something that I felt would be like not only harmless, but like exciting and cool. And um, when you say marketed, you mean because of what was normal in your family life? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I mean, my parents would have something after dinner every night. And like looking back, you start to see like, like some disturbing patterns that I think uh, were the beginnings of it. And it got worse over time. He wouldn't drink often, but then he couldn't stop. And then he wouldn't drink around us, but he was traveling a lot. So there's a lot of stuff hidden from us that um, I think he really effectively hid from us, which is really fascinating to me. <laughs> um, the major effect that it's had on my family, I think, is uh, psychological in that, like, there's a lot of um, enabling behaviors in everyone. Um, there's a lot of, like, willingness to cover up your own feelings in everyone in the family. Um, sort of shielding the other person or uh, choosing not to confront because confronting might be uncomfortable. Absolutely. Um, my experience with enabling, the the experience that comes to mind is um, it was a very typical experience when I was probably 12 to 13. This is Aiden. My mother would come home from her second job. She would start drinking and my dad would come home from work because he would have gone to a local tavern or pub or whatever. And um, I'd be doing my homework I had to maintain those perfect grades, constantly striving for my parents' approval. 
And it would be like 11, 30, 12 o'clock. And my mother would notice that my father wasn't home and she'd get really upset. And she made it my problem. So um, I knew every phone number for every bar in the town we lived in by heart. And I would call around, mind you, 12 or 13 years old. And I would find out where my father was. And I would take my mother's keys and I would drive in our minivan however many miles to go and collect my father. Now, I was not licensed to drive. I was underage. Um, and I enabled that situation. You know, that, that was a situation between my parents. My mother could have located my father. She could have let him stay out all night drinking. Um, he could have gotten arrested for a DUI, driving himself home drunk. He could have gotten into a cab. But instead, I drove illegally would collect my father. I would have the bouncer put him in the vehicle because by then he was completely trashed. I would drive him home. I would carry him in the house. I would get him undressed and put him in bed. So when you were 12 and 13 going through that, mm -hmm. did you have a sense that this was simply an unfair burden for uh, a person that age to be carrying? Absolutely. I was very angry. I knew it wasn't legal. I knew it wasn't right. And I knew that if I got caught, I was going to get in trouble and my parents weren't. Mm -hmm. I knew that. On, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that I was the scapegoat. Um, but I'd always, that was my role in the family. It was always, everything was my fault. You know, that was the message that I got from day one. If you weren't such a bad little girl, we wouldn't drink. So are you now in a place where you can feel that the behavior of parents who were going through those kinds of problems is not your fault, that you're not to blame for it? One of the most powerful things I've learned in my recovery in Alateen and later in life in Al-Anon is something we refer to as the three C's. I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. And the day that that light bulb turned on for me and I really realized that it had nothing to do with me and my parents were sick and suffering was one of the most liberating days of my life hurt people hurt people. You know, my parents weren't um, mean to me or critical of me or abusive towards me because I deserved it. That was a manifestation of their illness. You know, I didn't blame my mother when she got cancer for throwing up all over me after chemo treatment. That was a symptom of her disease. Similarly, my parents not teaching me an appropriate level of responsibility for my age or not providing me with a healthy environment for my age was a very extreme, mind you, but it was a symptom of their disease. Um, you know, they... So you're not excusing their behavior. Absolutely not, but I can understand. I can love the alcoholic and hate the disease. I can separate the fact that my parents loved me in their own sick, dysfunctional way and that I deserve better from them. Um... But I also recognize that every day they were fighting a battle that I myself am fortunate enough not to have to fight myself. Um, I know that the things I did that were inappropriate or wrong or unhealthy were things that were a product of that situation. If my parents hadn't been alcoholics or they hadn't been actively drinking, those situations probably never would have happened. Um, I can't go down the what-if path because it's not going to take me anywhere I want to go because um, I had the life I had. And today my life is beautiful and I'm a stronger person for it. Um, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I wouldn't do it differently either.
were talking with young people who were raised in homes where parental alcoholism left a lasting impact on the children. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Unintended Consequences, visit humanmedia.org. The National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence estimates that in the United States, more than half of all adults have a family history of alcoholism or problem drinking, and over 7 million children live in a household where at least one parent has abused alcohol. These children of alcoholism frequently bear emotional scars. The imprint of a drunk parent, sometimes angry, sometimes neglectful, can run deep. And that childhood pain often gets played out later in adult relationships. Alatine member Stephanie. It used to be a lot harder, but I'm learning in program to make the distinction between things that I am responsible for, which is myself and my decisions, and things that I'm not responsible for, which is the alcoholic and other people and their decisions. And that's one of the things that you learn in program, that you are only in control of you and you're only responsible for yourself and there's absolutely nothing else that you can control that's and at times it can be pretty damn hard to control oneself yeah but i think it's harder to accept that uh you can't control anything else i think that that's a really hard thing that a lot of people in program have a really difficult time accepting you know you go through times when you're just like i really really wish i could make this person see the things that I see and see things the way that I do. I just really wish I could get something through their head. And you can't. And that's one of the things that you have to learn in program is the only thing you can do is change yourself and learn your learn things for yourself. What are you working on changing in yourself now? What What's the, the challenge there? Right now, I think I'm working on accepting people, people that I can't change people's opinions, um, especially my mom, because right now me and my mom are clashing a lot. And what I'm working on right now is called detaching with love um, because sometimes when someone's really affecting you, you have to just sort of step back from the situation and say not that you're giving up on them or that you don't love them, but that you just have to step back and let them do their thing. Is that hard? You do their, yes, it's very hard, especially because I'm a very outspoken person and I am very stubborn with my opinions and I have my opinions and I think I'm right. And so when someone doesn't agree with me, I want to just go up to them and shake them and be like, I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> and, um, so it's hard to just step back and let other people do their thing and detach. But I'm working on it. And I have to understand that people are going to learn things on their own time. And I may not even be right. And that's really, really hard to admit. Jack? Uh, about like control, uh, what's your fault and what's not. Um, I guess for me, it, it, I think that that's kind of like the crux of the disease is not knowing the answer to that question. I thought everything was my fault, and I also thought nothing was my fault. Um, I thought I was like I was the constant um, evil victim. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't make really any logical sense, but um, you know anything from 
you know, a dating catastrophe to like a uh, a job loss. Now what I do is like I'll say the serenity prayer before I do something, um, almost anything where it's like a a day at work or or a you know a date to just keep those two things <laughs> up front. Uh, uh, you know, I'll say the serenity prayer and say, you know, that's basically searching for what can I control? What can I not control? Can you recite first those? Yeah, prayer? it's uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And I always take a breath there and try and figure out what those are. And the courage to change the things I can. And I'll take another breath and figure out what those are. And the wisdom to know the difference, which is what I hope I just got. And then I always say that I will not mind be done, and it seems incomplete without that because that's really like letting go of control of the situation and understanding that all you can do is your best effort in the situation. And you, know, you can put in what you can put in, but you can't guarantee the results that you want. And sometimes the results that you don't want are the best results to get. You just don't know it yet. You know? So like having that like center, the goal is to lead a self-examined life. And I think that, you know, trying to escape into not dealing with things that upset you, like I was talking about before, is the epitome of an unexamined life. It is like chasing after an unexamined life at full speed. So like to... <laughs> to so, sounds like yeah. a recipe for a collision to me. Yeah. So yeah, so that's, I think that's like the... Uh, I think that the beauty of recovery is 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 that question is finding those answers as you go and um and coming to peace with what's your fault and coming to peace with what's not and accepting it. I was shocked at how much just accepting what had happened helped. It feels like not it doesn't feel like an action that's going to change anything. But every time I've done that with something difficult from my past um it's always, always, always immediately given that, that, given me that relief. The only way for me to remain serene in, in my life is for me to have self-awareness. Um, you know, in Alateen, we we work the 12 steps, and step four is made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And step 10 is continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So a lot of looking in the mirror. Absolutely. And, and, it, and that comes back to knowing the difference between what's my responsibility and what is somebody else's responsibility. My life is much more manageable when I, when I look at my choices daily instead of pretending like I haven't made bad choices or that I could have made better choices and they build up and the consequences build up and then I look at it and you know it is a mountain instead of a molehill you know I'm I'm of the mind that um, when I get up in the morning I turn my day over to my higher power and I ask that I can be right-sized throughout the day that I can look at myself in a healthy way and make good choices for myself and at the end of the day I um, I do a gratitude alphabet. I come up with one word beginning with each letter of the alphabet that I'm grateful for in that day. It's a nice, uh, a nice exercise because, honestly, I think even on our worst day, there's at least 26 things that we can be grateful for, even if O stands for oxygen that we can breathe. Absolutely. 
Johanna, are you trying to lead a um, self-examined life? That That's really hard for me. Um, I have a hard time, like, looking back and seeing what, um, not even fix, but, like, maybe change in my everyday life. Um, before I started um, Alateen, I had a lot of anger problems. Um, my automatic feeling towards everything was I was either angry at not at myself, but at everyone else, like it's everyone else's fault, um, or uh, just upset, sad, I'd like cry about everything. Um, and now that I realize um, there are so many other feelings um, that, you know, are out there, like happy, you know, excited, nervous, um, you know, I finally learned how to like distinguish those feelings instead of being angry about everything. Um, you know, also being a teenager, that doesn't help because you go through so many, like, situations that it's just like, well, how do I deal with this? But, um, I mean, you can always go back and be like, you know, today was just an off day. And um, through a program, I've also learned that, you know, uh, it could be 530 at night and I can restart my day and be like, okay, you know, the next couple hours before I go to bed are going to be better hours than the rest of my day. Restart your day. Yep. We have slogans and program that... uh you know, I one of our slogans is uh, "Let go and let God," and uh, that's what I do. That's one of the bigger slogans I use through my program. What does that mean for you, Johanna? You know, I let go of what's happened, and I let you know my higher power take on that situation, and whatever comes from it comes from it, and um, you know, you learn from it, and you can only you know make it better in the future if you have the same situation happen again. Stephanie, how about for you, the leading an examined life? I think just being responsible for what you do and picking out ways um, that you can improve yourself on a day-to-day basis is leading an examined life. Um, not only things that you could do better on, like in a negative, things that you've done negatively that you could do better on, like um, maybe being more selfless, but things that you could do better on in a positive way, like... Uh, having more self-confidence. I've learned that it's really important to not focus on just your character defects because that can be um, depressing. It's good to find things that you could improve on as long as you're doing it in a healthy way and you're approaching it in a healthy way and you're not just beating yourself up about it, but it's also good to find things about yourself that you like and to find things about your day that maybe you're grateful for, like Aiden does the um, the gratitude alphabet, which is one of my favorite things to do. Counting your blessings is a simple yet potentially powerful tool for regaining emotional balance. The journey of recovery from the unintended consequences of parental drinking, and also in Jack's case from his own history of alcohol problems, can yield unexpected rewards. You know, drinking is something that I always want to do my family and particularly with my with my dad recently I've seen what recovery is like with your dad and it's probably the greatest thing that's ever happened to me because both of you are sober right and to see the kind of lessons I was talking about learning myself I mean I didn't even know that I was taught these things until I saw him grow and and see him uh, start to realize that he was wrong about this or that. I didn't even know that he that he was wrong myself <laughs> uh, until then. And uh, it's been really wonderful to like 
watch someone open up and see my 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 mother start to go to Al-Anon and um, drinking was something that like it threatened to tear our family apart. We got really really lucky um, that that these programs exist and stopped uh, stopped the cycle for us because we were all gonna die from this. Solutions to alcohol problems can be found at Al-Anon family groups, including its program Alateen, and at Alcoholics Anonymous. We thank Jack, Stephanie, Johanna, and Aiden for telling their stories. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Sarah Murphy, Max Leahy, and Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. And check our website for more information on thinking about drinking. It's our award-winning 12-part series describing many aspects of alcohol problems and solutions. This segment, Unintended Consequences, is Humankind Program number 170. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.